Well, as I just mentioned, we've been in the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 1 now, for several weeks, and perhaps you remember how this study began. John 1, verse 1, right out of the gate, a bold declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus is described as the Word of God. You remember, right out of the gate, the Apostle John proclaims Jesus in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what friends? Was God. Now, just 28 verses later, we hear from another John, John the Baptist, revealing another aspect of who Jesus is. The Word of God who was with God, who was God, is also the Lamb of God. Now, here in verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why an entire sermon on one verse? Well, if you know me, you know why. But why an entire sermon on one verse, on one sentence? Because in this one sentence, we have the essence of the Christian message. In this one sentence, we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament unifying around one person, Jesus Christ. In this one sentence, we see both Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humility. In one sentence, we see both Jesus' power and Jesus' purpose. In one sentence, we see both Jesus' suffering and our salvation. In one sentence, we see both Jesus' vicarious death and glorious victory. It's all right here. It's all right here in this declaration that begins with a very interesting word, behold. But let's connect where we've been to where we are so we know where we're going. Let me read the verse again. Verse 29, Gospel of John, chapter 1. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold. Let's stop right there. All right, so who is the he that's coming? Who is the he that sees Jesus coming to him? That he is none other than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who Pastor Ryan did such a wonderful job teaching and describing last week, is the herald, the forerunner, the one who the Old Testament prophets prophesied about. He would make straight paths for the Messiah. Yet he was so powerful in his ministry, so powerful in his preaching, that people were actually asking John the Baptist, are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? John the Baptist, could you actually be the Messiah? I mean, think of the impact this man must have had. Now, we understand John the Baptist best when we understand who he is and who he's not. Last week, you heard John the Baptist say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. I am not the Messiah. You see, what makes John the Baptist's ministry and message so powerful is he knows who he's not, but he knows 
who he is not. Why? Because he knows who the Savior is. He knows who Jesus is. Do we get confused about that sometimes, friends? Now, you might say, well, I know Jesus is the Savior of the world. But let's be honest. John the Baptist not only said it, but it would seem believed that he was not the Savior. So when things get bad, when things go dark, when things get hard, it reveals who we really think the Savior is. When we try to, under our own strength, under our own power, to take that bull by its horns and right the ship, make things better, there's something in our hearts that cannot agree with John the Baptist because we truly do believe we're going to fix this. We're going to change this. We're going to save this. Not only on some practical level when we're trying to change our circumstances by our own strength, but even on a spiritual level, let's be honest. Sometimes we not only think that we are the Savior, sometimes we get confused about who's God. We get confused about who's in control. We get confused about who's the center of the universe. No, when John the Baptist says, first, I am not the Christ, it's just verses later that he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am not the Christ, he is. Get that? And that's so freeing, isn't it? That's so liberating, isn't it? That there's one Savior, and it's not me, and it's not you. There's one God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. God has revealed himself in Christ. We are not him. The universe does not revolve around us. Our lives are not about us. And that's the best news we've ever heard. Oh, to live with a passion for the glory of Jesus Christ, to be in awe of Christ. And this is what happened. I mean, sometimes we can read the Bible and we can read it through a detached lens. We can read it so intellectually to the point of it's purely esoteric and detached. It's purely sterilized. No, I want you to enter into this situation, this scene. I want you to see this moment through the lens and the eyes of John the Baptist. He sees Jesus coming towards him, friends. So in your mind's eye, envision that. You're in the point of view and the perspective. You're in the sandals, per se, of John the Baptist. And you're at the River Jordan. And here he comes. Envision it. Jesus walking towards you. What would your reaction be? All right, now we're in church, right? So I could be preaching the choir here. Those of us saved, regenerate, born again, filled with the Spirit, what do we do? We fall on our face and say, glory. Oh, to be close to him. Oh, to just hear his voice. To see him with our own eyes. To feel his embrace. Lord, there cannot be anything greater. But it is only because of the truth of this message that Jesus is not only the word of God, but the lamb of God, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the lamb who changes the hearts of rebellious, wicked sinners and makes them into sons and daughters that we could truly say, yes, if Jesus was coming towards me, I would want to worship him because unless the lamb of God had come 
unless the Lamb of God was slain, unless the Lamb of God had taken away finally and forever my sin and was changing my heart from the inside out, let's be entirely honest. If we saw Jesus coming toward us, we might be curious about his teaching. We might be in awe of his miracles. We might be infatuated because of his influence or impact. But when we understand the holiness of Jesus, when we understand who he really is, no, we see him coming. There's something deep down in us that wants to run the other way. Be gone from me, Jesus. Remember Peter in the boat? Peter in the boat that witnessed Jesus' sovereignty over fishing. Witnessed Jesus' sovereignty over the fish, over the waves. Peter realized in an intersection of faith and work, Jesus is greater, Jesus is bigger, and he falls down and he says, be gone from me. I'm an unholy man. Now, if we saw Jesus coming towards us, without really believing and understanding what Jesus was going to do for us as the Lamb of God, we would run the other way. So this is why we can marvel at John the Baptist. We can marvel at his insight into Jesus's character very early on, right? Because this would take his disciples forever to learn. And to be honest, you could read Luke, Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, when he was in prison in Herod's temple, he had a moment of doubt. But very early on, John the Baptist had insight into not only, friends, listen, who Jesus is. Oh, but friends, who Jesus came to serve, that he proclaimed a message that even his disciples would not understand for years to come. Jesus, you see, isn't coming as only the warrior of God in the line of David, in the same way David defeated the Philistines, they all hoped and believed that the Messiah would come and defeat the Romans. You see, they believed perhaps he was not only the warrior of God, but he was the deliverer of God like Moses, who would lead his people into a mass exodus under the tyranny of Caesar. Instead of Pharaoh now, perhaps this Messiah would deliver us from Caesar. No, Jesus is not just a warrior of God. Jesus is not just the deliverer of God. John the Baptist understands Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to what? Take away the sins of the world. You understand that there's a war that's deeper than any nation or politic. You understand that there is a deliverance that is needed that goes far deeper than any tyranny of any earthly ruler. And that is... The battle against sin and the tyranny of that lying serpent, Satan. That's why Jesus came. That's the battle that he won. That's the deliverance that John the Baptist on some level here in John chapter 1, he understands and it leads him to say, behold. When's the last time you said behold? <laughs> Probably not very often. We don't use it too often in our vernacular. What do we say? Hey, look. Look over there. Right? Perhaps we see something beautiful. We see a sunset. We see something really picturesque. Look. But this goes deeper than direction. Right, friends? When the Bible says behold, it's not just talking about direction. It's talking about devotion. It's not just saying, hey, this is about your attention. No, this is about your awe. 
all. Friends, what leads you to all? What do you look to? What is your heart, your soul, your mind naturally hardwired to be in awe of? Because we all have it. Each one of us, because we're made in the image of God, made to reflect the glory of God. But because of the fall of man and because of the cancer of sin, it's inverted that desire for glory. Whereas we are made in the image of God for the glory of God, now we live for the glory of ourselves. And we don't want to see every good gift from our creator as a reason to enjoy him. No, it's a reason for us to enjoy them. The creator doesn't matter. The gifts become greater than the gift giver. What leads to awe? Friends, in 2019, Colts Neck, Monmouth County, Ocean County, New Jersey... What leads you, me, us, to all? Because here's the truth. Our all will direct our aim. What you're in awe of will direct how you live. Don't believe me? Pay attention to your heart. Not only pay attention to your heart, friends, listen. Pay attention to your anger. Pay attention to your frustration. Do you ever get shocked at how little we get angry about the things that God gets angry about? Like how much of our anger is based on the kingdom of God? Very little. What do we look for for all? Great book under that title named All by Paul David Tripp. He talks about one of the biggest. Now we could talk about lust. We could talk about success. We could talk about power. We could talk about entertainment. But let's just talk about money. Materialism. Because there's probably a few things that capture our heart, motivate us to work, motivate us to sacrifice, to serve, to find our security, our identity, more than material things. Paul David Tripps puts it like this. If you live in all of material things, you will spend lots of money acquiring a pile of material stuff. To afford your ever-increasing pile, you will have to work, what? A lot. Is that true, New Jersey? You will also tend to attach your identity, not only your identity, you'll tend to attach your inner sense of peace to those material possessions, spending too much time collecting and maintaining them. If these material things are your source of all, you will neglect other things of value and won't ever be fully satisfied. True or false? You won't ever be fully satisfied because these material things just don't have the capacity to satisfy your hearts like living in the awe of Jesus Christ. They never could. They never had the power, the ability to satisfy that deepest longing and craving for all. The book of Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Why do we think that mere money can fill that void? My parents, uh, and they will tell you, they were very successful at a young age, you know, handsome, attractive. They had the 
two kids. They had the white picket fence, successful career, making a ton of money, hand over fist. They had everything. Everything that the world would deem equals and leads to happiness. And that's how we understand the American dream, at least the American dream without the revelation of Christ. This plus this plus this equals happiness. My dad will still say to this day, I look back and I wonder why, after having everything I ever wanted, I felt so empty. Now, friends, is that honest question a practical question? It has practical implications. Is that honest question a financial question? No, deeper than that. That honest question, why, when I have everything that I could ever possibly want, am I still so unsatisfied? That is a theological question. You see, oftentimes when we fight and kill and sacrifice our health and our bodies and our lives for money, it has nothing to do with money. I'm going to hide behind the pulpit on that one. No, we don't have a finance problem. We have a heart problem. It's a worship problem. It's a beholding problem. It's an awe problem. In every single one of our hearts, let's be honest, it's about pride. It's always been about that. Do we live, friends, in awe of Christ or in awe of self? That's it. That's why John the Baptist would say, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. He would say, he must become greater, I must become less. Just verses before, the day previous, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. How could John the Baptist say, behold? Well, he understood who he was not, because he understood who Jesus was. He was the Lamb of God. It says here, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when we hear Lamb of God, that's perhaps filled with all kinds of interesting biblical significance. It needs to be said practically out of the gate that John the Baptist understood what a lamb meant. It wasn't just an animal. It was what the animal represented because John the Baptist was the son of a priest, the son of Zechariah. Not only that, John the Baptist was the son of Elizabeth who was cousins with none other than Mary. And you remember the story? Do you remember the scene where Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and the child in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist leaps for joy at the conception of Christ in Mary's womb. How many of us remember the old children's hymn, Mary Had a Little Lamb? You ever think of that in light of the gospel? I never did until I read this poem. And it's fantastic. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. Um, But Mary did have a little lamb, and not just a little lamb, the lamb. Mary had the little lamb who lived before his birth. Self-existent son of God, from heaven he came to earth. Mary had the little lamb, see him in yonder stall, virgin-born son of God to save men from the fall. Mary had the little lamb crucified on the tree, the rejected son of God. He died to set men free. John the Baptist understood that Jesus was the lamb of God. And this is deeply rooted in a lot of Old Testament scripture and truth. It goes all the way back to Genesis. 
For example, let's pull up this slide, Josh. How many of us remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham, who God makes a covenant with that through his offspring, God would bless the nations of the earth, that his descendants would become as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. That needs to happen, though, through the birth of a son. And it took decades and decades, much patience and waiting, but God delivered Isaac. God gave Abraham a son, and then God says, I want him back. God does something that God has never done, tests Abraham heart, Abraham's heart, and says, are you willing to give back this gift of a son? Here's the story, you remember? Isaac said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the what, church? The lamb. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You see, Abraham truly was willing to give back this gift to God. God, of course, stayed his hand, but on some level, Abraham knew that God would provide a lamb. Here's what's amazing about this. Do you remember that Christmas verse from the prophet Isaiah talking about the birth of Christ? The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall be with child, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And what's the sign, friends? The Lord himself. God will also give us a lamb himself. And what will be the lamb? Himself. Not only do we see that God saved Isaac, but God saves us because he gave us his son himself as the lamb. Isn't your Bible cool? Next verse. In the Exodus, next book of the Bible. We see here that a lamb without blemish was offered as God was delivering his people from tyranny and bondage in Egypt, saving them from the mighty hand of Pharaoh. Could Israel save themselves, friends? No. It took 10 miraculous signs and wonders, all culminating in what is now called the Passover, where a lamb without blemish was sacrificed and its blood was poured over the doorposts of each home and family of the people of Israel. And here's the story. Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is where Passover comes from. The imagery is profound. This lamb without blemish, its blood is sacrificed and then we find covering under its sacrifice. God's wrath, his justice, his judgment passes over us because of the lamb without blemish. This, of course, points to who? Jesus, the lamb of God who lived the perfect sinless life and then died as a substitute for our sins. Now, you might say, Pastor, what's all the emphasis about blood in the Bible? Why is it such a bloody book? Well, truth be told, the Bible makes it very clear. The wages of sin is death. Do we get that? Do we understand that? The Bible says, without blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So, ancient Israel was given a model that would foreshadow the Messiah. That these lambs would be sacrificed as a foreshadow of one who would be sacrificed finally and forever for our sins. Not a mere lamb, but God himself. If we don't understand 
our need for that sacrifice, don't be surprised when we don't appreciate grace. Let me say this. John the Baptist had a very big view of Jesus, okay? To the degree we have a small view of Jesus, friends, listen, we have a small view of sin. To the degree that we have a small view of Jesus, we have a small view of sin. To the degree that we have a small view of sin, we have a small view of what? Grace. To savor the grace of God is to understand the immensity of our sin and the majesty of our Savior. Why do many of us not think or take hell very seriously? Why? I mean, not only culture, but it's because none of us think we actually deserve to go there. Let's be honest. We're all pretty impressed by ourselves. We all think we're pretty good people, moral people. No, none of us really take hell serious. None of us take what the Bible says about hell serious. None of us take what Jesus says about hell serious because none of us think we deserve to go there. We have a small view of sin, so we have a small view of Savior, which leads to a small view of grace, which leads to no awe, all less. John the Baptist understands, no, behold. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away not only the sins of Israel, but the sins of the whole world. This was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. Quickly, we'll look at it. It says here, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what friends? Shalom, peace, real peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Next slide. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus was not only the Passover lamb where we would uh, experience freedom from sin, but we would also be pardoned from God's justice and judgment but he also reveals his tenderness at his trial. He reveals his humility. What is John the Baptist so in awe of, friends? Not only, not only that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but friends, listen. Who the Lamb of God came to serve. Are, you, are we in awe of that? Jesus, the word of God, who is God, is the lamb of God. John the Baptist is amazed by who this lamb came to serve. Not only serve, but to die for? And who's that? The world, right? Praise God. Praise God, the world. You too. You too. Me. Me too person sitting to the left and right of you, even them, died for the world, for us, for me, for you. That's who he came to serve, and that's what heaven celebrates. We see in the book of Revelation, the last book of your Bible, that all of heaven is still rejoicing about what you just heard, about not only the prophecy in Isaiah, not only the uh, pronouncement in John chapter 1, but at Jesus's victory. This is what is going on in heaven right now. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were, what does it say? Slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, the whole world, right? Every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Next slide. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hear it from not only the lips of a Baptist, Hear it from the lips of thousands upon thousands of angels. Right now, heaven has not moved beyond Jesus being the Lamb of God. Like, we never graduate beyond God's grace, right? Heaven right now and forever is glorifying Christ, saying, behold, he is worthy of all honor and glory. You know, there's another behold at the end of the Gospel of John. There's another behold. After Jesus' trial, this miscarriage of justice, this huge conspiracy bringing together factions that were never together, Pharisees and Sadducees, Herod and Pilate, Jew and Gentile, here it is, Jesus is before the angry, bloodthirsty mob. There's a man named Pilate, the governor, a Roman ruler, who says, behold, let's look at this passage. Now it was the day of preparation. Preparation of what, friends? None other than the Passover. You see all the New Testament coming together powerfully. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, what? Behold your king with sarcasm, with disgust, trying to jab at their hearts. And they cried out, away with him, away with Jesus, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Once again, trying to ignite their anger. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine? So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Behold your king, friends, the one who was silent at his trial, the one who was scourged, who was whipped, the one who had a crown of thorns pressed on his brow, the one who had nails pierced through his hands, the one who was disowned, the one who was mocked, the one who was beaten, behold your king. Behold the Lamb of God. Why did Jesus do it? For the glory of his Father, out of obedience to God, and out of love for you, out of love for us, because we needed the cross. How many of us on a daily basis hear the word awful? How many on a daily basis hear the word awesome? The cross is both. Fills us with awe because it's awful. The darkest day that the world has ever seen fills us with gratitude because God's love, God's grace, the distance and the length that God would go to save me, a wretched sinner, is truly awesome. Alexander White put it like this and we'll close. The cross is the picture of violence, but the key to peace. The cross is a picture of suffering, yet the key to healing. The cross is a picture of utter weakness, 
yet the key to power. The cross is the picture of supreme shame, yet the cross is the Christian's supreme boast. The cross is a picture of death, yet it is also the key to life. The cross is a picture of vicious, vicious hatred, yet the key to love. Do we know this Christ? Are we in awe of him? Can we say with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, who not only has taken away the sin of those who believe, Jew and Gentile, but my sin too. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your cross. We thank you that your word prophesied many, many centuries before the first Christmas that you would come, you would take on flesh, you would live amongst us, you would know our trials, you would experience our joys, you would live the, the perfect sinless life, tempted in every single way, yet always faithful, always in perfect communion with the Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lamb of God, slain, slain, because without the Lamb of God, there would be no hope for us, the people. So Lord, I pray that you would take this bold, big gospel truth and Holy Spirit, you would make it so personal, so real, so applicable to each one of our hearts that when we, even now, even now, we're in this battle of, all of self or all of Christ. We would realize how fragile we truly are. We would realize how prideful we truly are. How stubborn, mercy, stubborn we truly are. And just open up our hearts. Open up our minds. Repent of our apathy. Repent of our sin, repent of our idolatry, oh, and then fly to him. To see him coming. To see him on the cross. Would you create awe in us, Holy Spirit? Jesus, who was silent as a sheep before the shearers, who was silent before his accusers, silent before those who wanted to kill him. Father God, I hope we would be in awe of the moment when he was not silent on the cross. We would be in awe of the one crucified who says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This kind of awe leads to true worship leads to true devotion, leads to genuine mission. Friends, I'm going to invite everyone to please stand. Let's rise together in a spirit of prayer. And as you rise, I hope your heart would also...